Chapter Eleven of the Best Man. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. The Best Man by Grace Livingston Hill. Chapter Eleven. There were a lot of people at the station. They had been to a family gathering of some sort from their remarks, and they talked loudly and much, so that the two stood apart, for the seats were all occupied and had no opportunity for conversation. Save a quiet, smiling comment now and then upon the chatter about them or the odd remarks they heard. There had come a constraint upon them, a withdrawing of each into his shell, each conscious of something that separated. Gordon struggled to prevent it, but he seemed helpless. Celia would smile in answer to his quiet remarks, but it was a smile of distance, such as she had worn early in the morning. She had quite found her former standing ground with its fence of prejudice, and she was repairing the breaks through which she had gone over to the enemy during the day. She was bracing herself with dire reminders and snatches from those terrible letters which were written in characters of fire in her heart. Never, never could she care for a man who had done what this man had done. She had forgotten for a little while those terrible things he had said of her dear dead father. How could she have forgotten for an instant? How could she have let her hand lie close to the hand that had defiled itself by writing such things? By the time they were seated in the train, she was freezing in her attitude, and poor Gordon sat miserably beside her and tried to think what he had done to offend her. It was not his fault that her hand had lain near his on the rail. She had put it there herself. Perhaps she expected him to put his over it, to show her that he cared as a bridegroom should care, as he did care in reality, if he only had the right. And perhaps she was hurt that he had stood coolly and said or done nothing, but he could not help it. Much to Gordon's relief, the train carried a parlor car, and it happened on this particular day to be almost deserted, save for a deaf old man with a florid complexion and a gold-knobbed cane who slumbered audibly at the further end from the two chairs Gordon selected. He established his companion comfortably, disposed of the baggage, and sat down. But the girl paid no heed to him. With a sad, set face, she stared out of the window, her eyes seeming to see nothing. For two hours she sat so, he making remarks occasionally, to which she made little or no reply, until he lapsed into silence, looking at her with troubled eyes. Finally, just as they neared the outskirts of Pittsburgh, he leaned softly forward and touched her coat sleeve to attract her attention. "'Have I offended? Hurt you in any way?' he asked gently. She turned toward him, and her eyes were brimming full of tears. "'No,' she said, and her lips were trembling. "'No, you have been most kind, but—but I cannot forget those letters.' She ended with a sob, and put up her handkerchief quickly to stifle it. "'Letters?' he asked helplessly. "'What letters?' "'The letters you wrote me, all the letters of the last five months. I cannot forget them. I can never forget them. How could you think I could?' He looked at her anxiously, not knowing what to say, and yet he must say something. The time had come when some kind of an understanding, some clearing up of facts, must take place. He must go cautiously, 
but he must find out what was the matter. He could not see her suffer so. There must be some way to let her know that so far as he was concerned, she need suffer nothing further, and that he would do all in his power to set her right with the world. But letters! He had written no letters! His face lighted up with the swift certainty of one thing about which he had dared not be sure. She still thought him the man she had intended to marry. She was not, therefore, troubled about that phase of the question. It was strange, almost unbelievable, but it was true that he personally was not responsible for the trouble in her eyes. What trouble she might feel when she knew all, he had yet to find out, but it was a great relief to be sure of so much. Still, something must be said. Letters, he repeated again stupidly, and then added with perplexed tone, would you mind telling me just what it was in the letters that hurt you? She turned eyes of astonishment on him. How can you ask? she said bitterly. You surely must know how terrible they were to me. You could not be the man you have seemed to be today if you did not know what you were doing to me in making all those terrible threats. You must know how cruel they were. I'm afraid I don't understand, he said earnestly the trouble still most apparent in his eyes. Would you mind being a little more explicit? Would you mind telling me exactly what you think I wrote you that sounded like a threat? He asked the question half hesitatingly, because he was not quite sure whether he was justified in thus obtaining private information under false pretenses, and yet he felt that he must know just what troubled her, or he could never help her, and he was sure that if she knew he was an utter stranger, even a kindly one, those gentle lips would never open to inform him upon her torturer. As it was, she could tell him her trouble with a perfectly clear conscience, thinking she was telling it to the man who knew all about it. But his hesitation about prying into an utter stranger's private affairs, even with a good motive, gave him an air of troubled dignity, and real anxiety to know his fault that puzzled the girl more than all that had gone before. I cannot understand how you can ask such a question, since it has been the constant subject of discussion in all our letters, she replied, sitting up with asperity and drying her tears. She was on the verge of growing angry with him for his petty, willful misunderstanding of words whose meaning she felt he must know well. I do ask it, he said quietly, and believe me, I have a good motive in doing so. She looked at him in surprise. It was impossible to be angry with those kindly eyes, even though he did persist in a willful stupidity. Well, then, since you wish it stated once more, I will tell you, she declared, the tears welling again into her eyes. You first demanded that I marry you, demanded, without any pretense whatever, of caring for me, with a hidden threat in your demand, that if I did not, you would bring some dire calamity upon me by means that were already in your power. You took me for the same foolish little girl whom you had delighted to tease for years before you went abroad to live. And when I refused you, you told me that you could not only take away from my mother all the property which she had inherited from her brother by means of a will made just before my uncle's death and unknown except to his lawyer and you, but that you could and would 
blacken my dear dead father's name and honor and show that every cent that belonged to mother and jefferson and myself was stolen property when i challenged you to prove any such thing against my honored father you went still further and threatened to bring out a terrible story and prove it with witnesses who would swear to anything you said you knew my father's white life you as much as owned your charges were false and yet you did to send me a letter from a vile creature who pretended that she was his first wife and who said she could prove that he had spent much of his time in her company you knew the whole thing was a falsehood but you dared to threaten to make this known through the newspapers if i did not marry you you realized that i knew that even though few people and no friends would believe such a thing of my father such a report in the papers false though it was would crush my mother to death you knew that i would give my life to save her and so you had me in your power as you have me now you have always wanted me in your power just because you love to torture and now you have me but you cannot make me forget what you have done i have given my life but i cannot give any more if it is not sufficient you will have to do your worst she dropped her face into the little wet handkerchief and gordon sat with white drawn countenance and clenched hands he was fairly trembling with indignation toward the villain who had thus dared impose upon this delicate flower of womanhood he longed to search the world over for the false bridegroom and finding give him his just dues and what should he do or say dared he tell her at once who he was and trust to her kind heart to forgive his terrible blunder and keep his secret till the message was safely delivered dared he had he any right no the secret was not his to divulge either for his own benefit or for any others he must keep that to himself but he must help her in some way at last he began to speak scarcely knowing what he was about to say it is terrible terrible what you have told me to have written such things to one like you in fact to any one on earth seems to me unforgivable it is the most inhuman cruelty i have ever heard of you were fully justified in hating and despising the man who wrote such words to you then why did you write them she burst forth and how can you sit there calmly and talk that way about it as if you had nothing to do with the matter because i never wrote those letters he said looking her steadily earnestly in the eyes you never wrote them she exclaimed excitedly you dare to deny it i dare to deny it his voice was quiet earnest convincing she looked at him dazed bewildered indignant sorrowful but you cannot deny it she said her fragile frame trembling with excitement i have the letters all in my suitcase you cannot deny your own handwriting i have the last awful one the one in which you threatened father's good name here in my handbag i did not put it with the rest and i had no opportunity to destroy it before leaving home i felt as if i must always keep it with me lest otherwise its awful secret would somehow get out there it is read it and see your own name signed to the words you say you did not write while she talked 
Her trembling fingers had taken a folded, crumpled letter from her little handbag, and this she reached over and laid upon the arm of the chair. Read it, she said. Read it, and see that you cannot deny it. I should rather not read it, he said. I do not need to read it to deny that I ever wrote such things to you. But I insist that you read it, said the girl. If you insist, I will read it. he said, taking the letter reluctantly and opening it. She sat watching him furtively through the tears while he read, saw the angry flush steal into his cheeks as the villainy of a fellow man was revealed to him through the brief, coarse, cruel epistle, and she mistook the flush for one of shame. Then his true brown eyes looked up and met her tearful gaze steadily, a fine anger burning in them. And do you think I wrote that? he said, something in his voice she could not understand. What else could I think? It bears your signature, she answered coldly. The letter is vile, he said, and the man who wrote it is a blackguard and deserves the utmost that the law allows for such offenses. With your permission, I shall make it my business to see that he gets it. What do you mean? she said, wide eyed. How could you punish yourself? You cannot still deny that you wrote the letter. I still deny that I wrote it, or ever saw it until you handed it to me just now. The girl looked at him nonplussed, more than half convinced, in spite of her reason. But isn't that your handwriting? It is not. Look. He took out his fountain pen, and holding the letter on the arm of her chair, He wrote rapidly in his natural hand her own name and address beneath the address on the envelope, then held it up to her. Do they look alike? The two writings were as utterly unlike as possible, the letter being addressed in an almost unreadable scrawl, and the fresh writing standing fine and clear in a script that spoke of character and business ability. Even a child could see at a glance that the two were not written by the same hand. And yet, of course, it might have been practiced for the purpose of deception. This thought flashed through the minds of both, even as he held it out for her to look. She looked from the envelope to his eyes and back to the letter, startled, not knowing what to think. But before either of them had time for another word, the conductor, the porter, and several people from the car behind came hurriedly through, and they realized that while they talked, The train had come to a halt amid the blazing electric lights of a great city station. Why, said Gordon, startled, we must have reached Pittsburgh. Is this Pittsburgh? he called out to the vanishing porter. Yes, sir, yelled the porter, putting his head around the curve of the passageway. You better hurry, sir, for this train goes on to Cincinnati pretty quick. We is late getting in, you see. Neither of them had noticed a man in rough clothes with slouch hat and hands in his pockets who had boarded the train a few miles back and walked through the car several times, eyeing them keenly. He stuck his head in at the door now furtively and drew back quickly again out of sight. Gordon hurriedly gathered up the baggage and they went out of the car, the porter rushing back as they reached the door to assist them and get a last tip. There was no opportunity to say anything more as they mingled with the crowd until the porter landed their baggage in the great station and hurried back to his train. The man with the slouch hat followed 
and stood unobtrusively behind them. Gordon looked down at the white, drawn face of the girl, and his heart was touched with compassion for her trouble. He must make her some satisfactory explanation at once that would set her heart at rest, but he could not do it here, for every seat about them was filled with noisy, chattering folk. He stooped and whispered low and tenderly, "'Don't worry, little girl. Just try to trust me, and I will explain it all.' "'Can you explain it?' she asked anxiously, as if catching at a rope thrown out to save her life. "'Perfectly,' he said, "'if you will be patient and trust me. But we cannot talk here. Just wait in this seat until I see if I can get the stateroom on the sleeper.' He left her with his courteous bow, and she sat watching his tall, fine figure as he threaded his way among the crowds to the Pullman window, her heart filled with mingling emotions. In spite of her reason, a tiny bit of hope for the future was springing up in her heart, and without her own will she found herself inclined to trust him. At least it was all she could do at present. End of chapter 11